So I was telling Ryan this earlier. I think what we'll do once Adam gets here, uh, he's oh, here. Just... Oh, hi, Adam. Hi, gang. <laughs> Stop talking about him, bro. We're talking about you at all. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's just, he yeah, was. Weather. Ooh, it's crazy. <laughs> were we talking about that friggin' Adam again? We are. <laughs> we were. Oops. Recording in progress. Welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Of course, this is a podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot. Joining me today for the first time in 2022, Mr. Ryan Fleury. Woo! I'm back. Uh, and of course, what would Ryan Fleury be without Mr. Steve Barkley? I'm guessing happy. <laughs> <laughs> and wait, that's not all. Also joining us as the newest member of our Motley crew, Ms. Malone. Hey, happy new year. Indeed. How are you guys doing in 2022 so far? Fabulous. Fine and dandy. Beautiful. Well, you know, not only is it the first day back to work for a lot of us, uh, it is also World Braille Day. It is. And uh, of course, when you, dear listener, are listening to this, of course, it won't be World Braille Day, but it'll be, have been a week past, uh, but that's okay. Just pretend. Uh, in any case, uh, it is World Braille Day and for that momentous occasion, we do have a special guest. Ryan, will you do the honors, please? Well, our guest is very special because our guest is Adam Wilton, who was our very first guest ever on the AT Banter podcast. So five years ago, Adam made his debut appearance what? on this show. Yes. So we would love to welcome back Adam Wilton from the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired. It's great to be here, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm glad you could make it. I can't yeah, believe it's been five years. <laughs> I can't believe it's been on this most auspicious of days, World Braille Day 2022. That's right. 213 Indeed. years since the birth of Louis Braille. Wow. Man. How about that? Yeah. Wow, he doesn't look a day over 40, right? <laughs> <laughs> right that's what it says on his tinder profile but he's yeah <laughs> fudging it a little bit i think <laughs> uh well hey listen so what we uh thought the plan was and what we'd love to talk to adam about and honestly there you know when we when we sat around and thought what the heck are we going to do for world braille day this year um adam your name was sort of the top of the list of people who that we could, we could have on the show and to just talk about Braille, because I feel like put put all of us in a room, bring up the topic of Braille, and we can just talk for hours. So that's exactly what the plan is. How much tape have you got, Rob? Because <laughs> this got is lots. a big one. Yeah, I got an external hard drive. We're good to go. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I guess I'll just kind of fill in a little bit about who I am and where I'm coming to this conversation from, um, just because I think it might be helpful. 
first and foremost, I just want to say, just in the interest of identity and representation, I am not a Braille reader myself. I'm a teacher of students who are blind or have low vision. I have been a teacher uh, of the visually impaired for the last 15, almost 16 years. Um, and I've been the manager here at the Provincial Resource Center for the Visually Impaired uh, for the last five, almost six years now. Um, and so I come to the topic of Braille as an educator, um, as an ally, and as an enthusiast, um, but not as a user myself. Although I do read Braille visually just because if I didn't, I wouldn't be very good at my job. I also wouldn't, I, I'd also have a back room, a warehouse full of bumpy paper. So maybe we can just sort of start the conversation um, because it has been, it has been a few years since we talked to you last and mm -hmm. it has been a while since we've actually really talked much about Braille itself. Um, but can you kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot of just, you know, what, what is kind of, what is the state of Braille education these days? Uh, is it getting better? Is it improving? Um, just where are we at? That's a really great question. You know, when we, when we last chatted, I think that, um, uh, a trend that we were starting to see in the field of uh, blindness education was um, thinking about Braille for a wider range of students, not just our students who maybe are more academically motivated and they're out there, you know, reading Harry Potter cover to cover or, um, you know, they're out, uh, they're out, you know, writing great essays and, and whatnot. I see a, a, a major shift and it's very, very exciting that, you know, we're, we're thinking of Braille and Braille literacy for a wider range of students who are blind or visually impaired. You know, it's not, it's not just for those students who are, who are more academically motivated. And so, but coupled with that, it's also a move to think of not just Braille for a wider range of students, but think of like, what Braille means to, to, to that wider range of students. You know, we like, we, we, in our field, we used to call it, um, we used to have something we called functional Braille. And that was where, you know, students would learn functional skills like making shopping lists and, and labeling uh, personal items or, um, you know, other kind of independent living skills tasks. But the really exciting thing that I've seen in the last several years is that, for students who might have a visual impairment and let's say a more complex profile, um, you know, we're not just teaching these students how to create a shopping list. You know, we're working on more meaning-centered approaches um, that really um, that, that really help Braille to meet them where they're at, rather than thinking, okay, we're either going to do a shopping list or we're going to do Harry Potter cover to cover. So that for me has been the really the the exciting piece that has grown since we last spoke. So Braille is very, very much alive in kindergarten through grade 12, um, even though compared to the rest of the population, a relatively uh, small number of students are, are reading Braille in their elementary and secondary years. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I'm I'm kind of curious. I was I was reading an article earlier, and it um, sort of it, it was it was um, an article out of out of the U.S. and um, you know they were saying that they figured that um, 
Braille, Braille literacy had dropped from somewhere in the, in the high 50s, um, you know, 20 years or 30 years ago, um, all the way down to like 10%. I'm just wondering here in Canada, do we have any sort of statistics? Like, do we know how many people are sort of actively using Braille? Uh, and if so, like, why not? Is, why isn't that something that, that some of the, the blindness organizations um, are keeping track of nationally? Well, I think one of the challenges that we face uh, in Canada in terms of the number of Braille readers is that we've got um, we've got kind of multi-sector involvement with stakeholders, whereas in the U.S. there's still a range of stakeholders in the blindness community, but um, many operate at a federal level. And so you've got these broader federal um, agencies that are collecting data, you know, coast to coast. Um, in Canada, with uh, particularly in, in K-12 education, because the um, education is the purview of the individual provinces, um, I think we, you know, if you were to look provincially, we probably have a reasonably good number. Um, but then that's further complicated, Rob, by the fact that then we've got to look at, okay, well, to what, like, how are students using Braille? Because for example, um, you can have a student who is totally blind, who is requesting Braille every single semester all the way through their educational career. And then you can also have a student, let's say with low vision, who reads both print and Braille as a dual media learner. And then, so I, I think one of the challenges we face is having metrics that are sensitive enough to be able to pick up the number of Braille users, but then further to that, being really clear about what do we mean when we say a Braille user? Right, so so given that though, like, so what's the general feeling around? Like, do you, are enough people still learning Braille and still using it on a daily basis in, you know, by any metric that sort of you see on a daily basis? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you were to, and this is where I think a lot of the, the evolution has happened in terms of some of the thinking around uh, Braille and, and what it means through an equity lens, because I actually see, I, I actually see the numbers narrative as being problematic. Um, and I actually see it be, I see it being problematic because every time some, there's some question about the validity of Braille, the number of users invariably comes up. But as far as I'm concerned, and call me idealistic, but if I've got one student who's requesting Braille and that's their best medium for, um, for learning, then we're going to provide it. We're going to find a way to make it work. Um, so I, got, I, and I hope that is, I, I'll, I'm not dismissing the question, Rob. It's just, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to move away from this statistical narrative because I, I see it actually rooted in some, some latent ableism. So that stance, that philosophy then, Adam, one Braille reader is, is a success. Is that like just a, a BC mandate philosophy that you have, or do you think that's happening nationally? I, I can't really say, Ryan. I, 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 and I wouldn't even go so far as to call it a BC philosophy. It's a it's, 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 it's what I believe and what I try to bring to my work. Right. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say that it characterizes any one, uh, you know, any one sector over another. Um, I think, I think the really key thing 
to realize or and and, and to recognize at all levels is that um, you know we say we, we see on Twitter and Facebook and, and online you know Braille is literacy mm-hmm. and 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 I would go so I would go further to say you know Braille is equitable meaningful access to literacy and you know so then that kind of that that furthers that narrative a little bit to say that you know it it's it's not just a writing system right right it's not just a writing system it 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 represents something very very important to a group of learners and whether that learners is five or if there's five of them or 500 of them if we're going to be if we're going to have education systems that are um, that that prioritize meaningful equitable access for students who are blind or have low vision um, and braille is their primary learning medium um, then then we you know need to find ways to to provide it i will say we're fortunate here in british columbia that we have systems and structures at all levels that understand that um, and that continue to support the provision of uh, the per- not only the provision but the proliferation of Braille um, in in schools across the province. And if I could just add something to that, Adam, that that sentiment you just um, just brought up, I think that the system, if you will, is a little short sighted when they're very quick to dismiss the importance of Braille within the the low vision um, and blind community, because I think that that school of thought that things can be replaced with audio products mm. and um, QR codes that'll read it to them. I think they're completely dismissing the deafblind community that those audio products don't do anything to assist. Well, and you know, Liz, that that's really tapping into kind of an age old I'm not even don't even want to call it a debate. I, I almost want to call it like a trope. You know, this this idea that um, that audio is somehow going to, you know, eventually audio access is going to, uh, you know, supplant or push Braille out of the learning space altogether. Uh, I mean, all, all you need to do is ask a teacher about the differences between um between reading and listening, and you can already start to see why, uh, for many learners, there's uh, there's a there's a real advantage to having a have, to having a writing system, which is what Braille is. Um, and and you know, with respect to the uh, point, the means of um, meaningful access for our deafblind learners. Um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I, and actually, I I, I like to think. That what I mentioned from the outset around, you know, uh, Braille being thought of for uh, being not only thought of, but like supported joyfully and enthusiastically for a wider range of students with a wider range of profiles. I like to think that our students who are deafblind have been included in that in that um, widening of the, the Braille tent that we've seen, at least in elementary and secondary education in the last 10 years. Because I, I and I definitely think that society in general, whether it's in the U.S. or in Canada, they are very single-minded in thinking that, uh, or I, I should say, forgetting that there are 
persons with multiple disabilities mm -hmm. and they'll just see a, okay, well, we have this fix for this one issue, but they don't see it as, uh, you know, a combined, um, you know, state or condition that, right. you know, that singular solution is, is, isn't kind of null and void for. Right. And it's those students with more diverse profiles where, you know, we really do need to have a range of tools in our toolkit because, you know, there's, whatever kind of quote unquote typical student with that profile, we might think, um, you know, the, the, the best, the best thing that a, that a, you know, that a prototypical understanding of a student profile is going to get us is in the ballpark, but it's not going to tell us exactly what that student needs to be successful. Um, and so I, I agree hundred percent. These, these things need to be, need to be responsive to diversity as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to a, uh, a one solution per one profile scenario. Yeah, and I really do think that that is a is a pretty mis like it's a pretty big misconception that a lot of people will have. You know, we're just used to oh, this technology replaces that technology replaces this technology. We're kind of used to that type of mindset, and, and people don't necessarily understand the pros and cons of each you know each solution as it stands. You know, if they're not in that community and and having that lived experience, so I think that that's where you know education and educating people. Um, is really important in having these types of conversations. Can I give you an example, Rob? Yeah, please. It's a little bit, it's related to Braille, but it's more kind of a, you know, non-visual access compensatory skill type uh, example. But the Cramner abacus, uh, you know, the teaching, using the abacus to teach, you know, place value, basic operations to blind students was a tried, tested and true um, strategy. And, you know, it's it, sometimes there's the perception of, oh, well, why can't we just teach talking calculators? Well, we might teach talking calculators, but we also have to recognize that this older, lower, more, I'll say maybe more established, excuse me, lower tech solution has value in and above its, like, its compensatory piece, because you're also, you know, when you're when you're working on an abacus, you're learning place value in a way that you're not going to get from a talking calculator. So it's, I, I like to use that example one as a not so gentle plug for my teacher, the visually impaired colleagues, to keep teaching the abacus, but also um, to keep in mind that you know some of these lower tech solutions that are more established um, may have value beyond the beyond the surface level functions that are being elaborated on by whatever higher tech solution comes next. Well, and how many people do we know still rely on a slate and stylus for producing Braille, right? Absolutely. You know, I love true. sitting in conferences and hearing that <laughs> <laughs> behind me. I, it's, it's, it warms my heart. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, what are some of the roadblocks that you see to um, Braille education? Um, you know, do we have enough teachers? Uh, do we have enough? Is there enough people that that wants to learn Braille? Or, you know, what? What? Where are we with that? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I uh, one of the kind of regular issues, and and we would have talked about this five years ago, and um, you know, we're we're continuing to make progress. But one of the challenges that we do face in our community of educators of the blind or visually impaired are the number of us. Um, 
And so, you know, we're, we're consistently recruiting into our field, um, you know, getting educators aware that this is in fact a specialization, um, you know, uh, and, and getting people interested, you know, uh, we're, we're really fortunate that the, the, the educators that, that come into our field by and large are some of just, you know, they're some of the most creative and just passionate educators that I've ever had the good fortune of, of, of working with and um, who tend to be in the field for quite a long time. The challenge is getting them into the field and getting them aware that this is, this is something that, you know, a, a qualified educator can take on with, with, the, uh, with, the, with the right training. Um, so there's the, there's the supply of teachers. Um, and I also think part and parcel to that is the, the, just the consideration of Braille as a viable option for a student. Uh, you know, I mentioned before, one of, the, one of the really positive trends that we've seen in the education space in the last 10 years has been um, you know, meaningful, meaningful consideration and engagement in Braille programs for a wider range of students across a wider range of uh, more diverse range of profiles. But the challenge with that is if you don't have the specialists who are working in those school districts, in those education authorities, in those communities, who can, can, can in inject Braille into the broader conversation around what access is going to look like for that student, um, then you, know, you might default onto other means of access that are perhaps more familiar to, to you know, the cl classroom teachers and families, parents, guardians, things like audio access, you know, things, things like, um, uh, things like, um, you know, magnification and enlargement and, and, and strategies, strategies like that. So I think the supply of teachers is something that we're always trying to work to make sure that we have enough to provide enough educators to provide responsive service to students. Um, and but not only to, you know, the students that they are currently serving, but also to have the capacity to take new students on to to, you know, um, consult with um, uh, with students who might not be, you know, they might not qualify as visually impaired, but there might, but vision might be involved in some way. Um, just having the time, space, and bandwidth to be able to to do that, I think, is is uh, is really important. And so it's um, it's a it, yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Uh, and you know, I'm I realize I'm horribly biased in saying that it really is the best job in education, if not the best job out there. Um, but I mean, where else do you get to live, learn, and grow with students from kindergarten through grade 12? You know, you could be, you could be finger painting at 8 a.m. and helping a student on advanced calculus by 9 a.m. You know, it's, 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 it, really is, it really is one of the, one of the most fulfilling, most engaging uh, gigs you can have in, in education today. So I do have to ask this question, and it is COVID related, but how has it, how have you guys been able to pivot with COVID and the whole hybrid schooling learning solutions, you know, in class one day, out of class the next, that, that has, has had to have been a very tricky slope for you guys to work with students one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one or whatever the ratio is. Right, Ryan. That's a yeah. It's it's interesting because in some ways it's been very challenging, but in other ways it's actually been 
quite, uh, there's been a lot of like affordances, like they, there's been some silver linings for sure. Um, one of the challenges I think has been where, um, you know, where students have, uh, you know, where, where maybe they've been newer to Braille and they've needed more uh, hands-on, um, you know, direct work um, with, you know, exploring different uh, textures and surfaces and exploring tactile maps and globes and, and images. Um, there's certainly been, been, that, been that challenge, but then the kind of the silver lining has been as, as hybrid learning has come on, uh, come online, it's really put the entire education system in a position where they're thinking more and more about digital accessibility than mm -hmm. they ever have before. Yeah. So, you know, I heard from a, a colleague last year that her student with low vision was actually doing incredibly well with hybrid learning because the materials that, so the materials were being designed for all students to look at from 30, 30 to 40 centimeters away on a screen rather than that student being the only one um, accessing materials that way, the student right. with low vision, I should say. So it's like, it's, it's been a really interesting time where yes, there's been that, 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 that challenge of disruption of the more hands-on direct contact piece, but then there's also been some really interesting affordances that frankly, I hope our system can learn from and internalize mm -hmm. so that digital accessibility remains a priority with whatever comes next. Yeah, for sure. So what age then is, is sort of the best to introduce Braille to, to a, a blind child? Oh, Rob. <laughs> I know Rob, it might Rob. be a loaded question, but. Rob, Rob. Well, okay, so here, here's, the, here's what I'll say. Literacy development, as, as long as, like, literacy development starts from day one, in my opinion. You know, if you are gathering information about your world, you are on the path to literacy. And so when we talk about, like, the age to introduce Braille, um, I think the question has got to be, as, as, as print-rich and as print-prioritized, our environments are for our typically sighted learners. They've got, the, for our blind and low vision learners, Braille has got to be in there, Simil similarly prioritized, similarly uh, ubiquitous. Um, and, and that also means, you know, starting on, a, on the same timeline. Now, the caveat to that though, is um, you can acquire Braille reading and writing at any point of the lifespan. Um, and so, you know, we have many students. In fact, the last time I was on the podcast, I remember I was talking about the Braille Challenge, which is a Braille reading and writing competition that we host, that is hosted across North America every year in Canada and the US. And we've hosted it here in British Columbia for the last 10 years. It's actually our 10 year anniversary this year. Um, now we're gonna be entirely virtual. Um, um, 
just with with um, with uh, safety precautions and whatnot. But one thing that you know we have at the Braille Challenge, we have students who have been reading Braille their entire lives. It's the only it's the only literacy medium they've ever they've ever used. We have other students at the Braille Challenge who might have only been learning Braille for the last four months. And so the most important thing in my mind is 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 um, you know aside from the value of early rich inclusion and immersion in uh, in 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 braille rich environments um, I say that it's important but then if you've got good quality uh, learning environments and educators and and family members who believe in the value of braille um, and you've got an environment that supports that then you know you can really introduce braille at, at any point and I that the braille challenge, as I said, we have students who might have only been reading Braille three or four, uh, three or four months at that point, um, but we find a way to make it work for them so they can have a fun day um, connecting with their peers who read and write in the same way um, that uh, that they do. So obviously, there's a big priority on early rich contact with uh, with Braille for blind and low vision um, preschool population. But with that said, you know it's it. it as, as long as it's a priority and that, that, that it's valued and it's, um, you know, it's seen as functionally equivalent to print, Braille can be acquired at any point in the elementary and secondary years. Is it ever a challenge to, to be teaching Braille within, say, uh, the school system? Because I, I kind of liken it to, say, French immersion. Because I know that I can only imagine what it's like for, for a kid to be in uh, a French immersion class and they, they not only they're, they're learning all the regular subjects, but they also have this layer of they're also learning French mm -hmm. at the same time and how, you know, really challenging that could probably be for some kids. Is it, is it kind of the same way when you're trying to teach Braille alongside all of the other regular subjects for them? Like, can it get kind of overwhelming for them? It, it, I, in my experience, it really depends on the uh, at what point in the student's educational career they're they're learning they're acquiring Braille, um, because you know, as a as a, a teacher of students who are blind or have low vision, I I see one of my most significant functions as working with the classroom teacher so that I can integrate what I'm doing in terms of my specialized instruction so that the student is meaningfully participating in what the whole class is doing. So I'm trying my best to make sure what I'm doing is integrating with what all of the students in the rest of the class are doing so that I'm not creating this special little braille world, you know, on the side, I'm, I'm supporting the development of the mechanical skills for braille reading and of comprehension, vocabulary, um, you know, all those, those really key foundational literacy development areas. Um, but I'm trying my best to do so in the context of the student's environment. So in, when I, in kind of the elementary years, I'm, I'm working with that classroom teacher to make sure that, um, that, that, that the classroom environment is you know, not only accepting, but is responsive to a student learning Braille. In the secondary school years, it's a little bit different because everyone else in the classroom already has really well-established print literacy skills. And so the opportunities for integration are a little bit more challenging. And so if I've got a student who's learning Braille at the 
high school level, I'm looking to find ways to kind of jigsaw that into the student's day so that, you know, we're trying to create organic learning opportunities as best as possible. So for example, um, you know, if the student has a study block, I might try to work Braille instruction in there, or I might try to find a way to have Braille offered as um, an independent study course between myself and the student so that that student's gonna get credit for the time that they're working, um, the time that they're working. Because you know that what you've, what you kind of, uh, your, your question, Rob, is one where it's, it's a constant challenge to, with, with a really busy, full provincial curriculum, to also find time and space and bandwidth to teach those, those visual impairment specific skills, what we call, what we refer to the, as the expanded core curriculum. And while I wouldn't consider Braille, like Braille to me is, is, a, is, a, is a core literacy skill, not the expanded core curriculum, but it is still something that will, that will depending on the age of the student um, and where they're at in their educational career, how much extra work will depend. So, I mean, I realize that's kind of a wishy-washy answer, but I, I guess the answer is it depends. No, well, I, yeah, think, makes sense. I think too, though, uh, we have to keep in mind that you're not going to be teaching calculus braille codes to somebody in grade five no. or some of that scientific notation. So they'll be learning braille as needed as they you know progress and decide which route they want to take in post-secondary and so on. You know, whether it's music braille, math braille, scientific notation, whatever, right? So they're not learning it all at once. Yeah. There is a process there, just Absolutely. like language. Yeah. And that's why... That's why it's really like, I realize I'm biased in saying this, but that's why it's really important to have really solid involvement from a qualified teacher of visually impaired students, because this is someone who has specialized training in and experience in um, integrating all of those different pieces in and setting that, that trajectory for acquiring those specialized tools and skills and devices. Because really what we want to do is we want to have learning in the expanded core curriculum, you know, those visual impairment specific skills and knowledge. We want to have that supporting learning in the core curriculum and vice versa. We want to have these things as mutually supportive, not, ex not kind of excluding one another um, because of hours in the day or something like that. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit away from from the school system and talk a little bit about adults because mm -hmm. of course blindness can occur at any age and and i feel like especially this idea of people thinking that oh yeah you know what uh, just just screen readers or audio can replace something like braille i think is is probably a common attitude when it comes to adults that are say that that are sort of losing their vision and this is kind of a, a kind of a two-pronged question and it's more hypothetical i think than specific just a conversation starter but how do we how do we better gauge adults to get excited about learning braille and in the long term is it is it worth it for adult for an adult that is experiencing vision loss to learn braille because i i kind of get the feeling that it depending on who you ask you might get a different answer yeah, I suppose I should start with the caveat by saying that the blind adults and colleagues in my orbit are some of the most enthusiastic people about Braille <laughs> on this earth. Um, I'm glad your question was hypothetical because I don't know that I can answer it specifically. 
just because I'm I'm very privileged to to work with and learn from blind and visually impaired colleagues every day, um, each of whom uses Braille and believes in its power and its relevance for 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 students, um, and in, in 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 from what they've shared with me in their own lives as well. With that said, I also will, I also absolutely recognize, appreciate and value what some of my blind friends tell me about, you know, how most of what they do in a given day might be in, um, you know, might be using a screen reader or, or using um, some other form of, of, uh, of, of text-to-speech. But I'll tell you, you know, one of the things I, I rarely have ever encountered is anyone who regrets the time that they spent learning and working in Braille. Um, you know, even if it's someone who doesn't use it, hard copy Braille on a regular basis in their day-to-day -day life, you know, just out and about as an adult in the world. Um, I can't think of an instance and, uh, of anyone who said to me, you know, I really wish they would have got me started on audio only from day one. I've never encountered that. Many of my blind friends and colleagues credit, credit Braille with, <clears throat> with, 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 with giving them the skills and uh, the, 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 the literacy skills and the motivation to, you know, continue to learn and to continue to thrive in the literate world, um, you know, many of them credit credit their 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 use of braille yeah and i mean i would say that you know in, in my experience too i mean i i've run into people that you know really say generally say the opposite they'll say things like you know i wish <clears throat> i wish i had learned braille sooner or right. well let me ask you this then so what kind of resources are out there like how difficult is it for an adult to actually learn braille mm. So that's a, it's a good question. And it's not one that I'm probably best positioned to answer just because I, I've worked in, I've worked in kindergarten through grade 12, my entire, well, entire adult life um, to date. I know there's, that there's a lot of variables there, right? There, yeah, there is, yeah. there's a lot of variables. I think one of the things that I would point to with adults is the education system has a like if you've got a blind student who comes to us who, who enrolls in a school district there's a mechanism in place to get services in place for that student right that may or may not include instruction in braille and provision in materials and technology that are braille in braille format or braille oriented i think that the difference in the adult world is that you have multiple stakeholder groups and it it's really up to the individual to kind of navigate those services. Um, whereas in kindergarten through grade 12, you've got specialists who are kind of who, who are do who are either doing some of that navigating work or ideally who are doing that navigating work worth not for but with students and families. I can tell you, Adam, here in the United States, what's frustrating about getting services is that it varies based on what state you live in, mm. what services are available, what proximity. And then in addition, they do prioritize you because if you are a student or if it's considered a quote job save situation, you can get your services. And I use this word 
loosely relatively quickly mm. as opposed to just being somebody who is registered as having a, a disability. So being on the side of having to try to navigate that system is very, very frustrating. And then when you do get into that system, the challenge is that you're only given so many services based on your evaluation. So I can tell you in my, when I started to lose my vision, they evaluated me for Braille. Right. They, they gave me the little tests where they kind of had me, you know, feel the bumps. Mm -hmm. And I was classified as her fingers are useless. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't have the sensitivity to really feel the, 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 and I said, I'm like, how many dots are am I supposed to be feeling? And they'd be like, there should be four. I'm like, I don't feel four. I think, what is there? Are you sure there's four? I think I feel six. They're like, no, 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 your fingers, my fingers are just not sensitive enough or too sensitive. And um, so right there, they're like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to recommend that she learn Braille. So then it became up to me to kind of have to try to learn Braille on my own. And, you know, as you guys were saying, like, you know, when does it become important for a person to, to prioritize that, that Braille is something useful for the blind and low vision community. It's not until you freaking need it. <clears throat> That's the, one of the issues, like you say, is access to resources. You know, even here in Canada, we can access resources through the Hadley School for the Blind. I believe some resources through Perkins as well in the U.S. But here in Canada, is there, like, does the CNIB teach Braille still to adults? Like, I don't know what resources are available for adult learning outside of the job field or, or education. Well, one, Ryan, that I would point to, and just um, one of the hats I wear is as a board member for Braille Literacy Canada, right. and they've got their Braille Zoomers program, right. which is fantastic, um, and is, you know, Braille, Braille literacy instruction and support and resources for adults who are learning Braille by experienced Braille readers. Um, you know, they've also got the Braille, the Braille or Bounce program, which will get donated Braille writers refurbished and into the hands of, of um, adults who are learning Braille. Um, and so, you know, I'm pretty familiar with those programs and I know that they're, they're, they're been really successful. And I think the hope is that those things like that can be scaled up. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, but, but I think that brings us back to the original point though, that it really is like, it's, it's when we look at how are these services navigated, you know, Liz, I think you made a really good point that it, it really does come back to the, to the individual. So, you know, I think there's two sides here. One, how do we better empower blind and visually impaired adults? But on the other hand, what about the system has to change? Mm. Because I think in 2022, expecting that individuals are going to change to suit a system is, 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 is rooted in old school ableist notions of, you know, of, of, of mainstreaming about how, you know, blind and low vision students will adapt to fit what's happening in the, to, to adapt to fit the classroom with their specialized tools and uh, devices and whatnot, um, rather than having the learning environment also adapt to the needs of the learner. I think you can take that up from the classroom level and apply it at a community or societal level as well. That is such a great way to look at it. Yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I've been talked to some of my, my blind friends about this recently. We were talking about how, 
Well, we were talking about the, you know, the fact that every time there's an article in a popular news media outlet proclaiming the death of Braille, every <laughs> one of us, whether we're a Braille user or a Braille enthusiast, you know, a Braille user themselves, or in my case, a Braille enthusiast and educator, um, you know, everyone in our social media will send it to us and say, oh, did you see this? <laughs> and I used to respond to those articles with education and awareness, and I still do, but I'm also starting to look at them through an equity and discrimination lens as well. And thinking about, you know, how much of the, how much of the proclamation of the death of Braille is really just rooted in old school ableism. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions made by the media, and it's not just around Braille too. It's oftentimes about things like, you know, guide dogs. I, I, Sonar canes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've I've seen a couple articles where you know they they've said, oh, you know, people aren't going to need guide dogs anymore because you know they're going to have robots or they're going to have this, or they're going to have that. And it's like, shut up, because <laughs> really, all all they're doing is they're just taking donations away from guide dog schools when they well, report like we, that. Steve, on that note, one of the challenges that you one of the and this is with something that I've been really kind of interested in and in, and in looking at uh, in the last year or so is this idea of, of co-design. And, you know, when you look at the, cause I think I know the robot guide dog that you're, that you're speaking of. And, you know, the person testing it in the video is someone wearing eye shades, you know, and, I, and, and now, now I don't know, perhaps this group of developers and designers did in fact consult with actual users. But in my mind, these days, the only thing that gives a development credibility is the extent to which it was co-designed with users themselves, mm -hmm. with users being centered in the process and not just being kind of a, you know, oh, provide us feedback as an afterthought. Uh, and I think that idea of co-design, that idea of inclusive design is something that we can apply not only in education or orientation and mobility, but across any product that's available to, um, you know, just the wider, the wider public, whether it be a, you know, a, 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 a smartphone app or a, a new kitchen appliance. Yeah, I, I recall year, years ago when uh, Mike May was first uh, going around showing uh, GPS technology for the blind that had been developed. Um, you know, he, he came here to Vancouver, he did a did a thing. And the next thing we knew, there was an article saying, oh, they're, they're blind people aren't going to need guide dogs anymore, because now they've got GPS. <laughs> it, it, never underestimate the possible the, the, the likelihood of the media to get things wrong. It, it, it's really, in my mind, I think, important to, to, on the one hand, like, really be, you know, recognize and value the enthusiasm that comes behind some of this. But then there's also, just as you said, Steve, a lot of assumptions. It's also really important to critically look at some of the assumptions that are behind some of these messages. And, and, and to be critical of those, uh, of those messages. Um, and, and kind of taking that a step to a further than looking to say, okay, is this something that was designed with users or was it something that was designed exclusively for users? Yeah. And, and then if that's the case, who is this really benefiting? Is it benefiting, is it benefiting the cause of equity and anti-discrimination for blind and low vision users? Or is it benefiting the broader sense of our collective sense of goodwill in terms of what 
has been done for, but not with. And circling back to our conversation around Braille, uh, Braille literacy and instruction, I some of the greatest allies that I have as an educator are my friends and colleagues who are Braille users themselves. Um, you know, I have uh, I have a, a very close colleague and, and friend who I've worked with for many years, and I can tell you that. Um, when I was a, an itinerant teacher of students with visual impairments, teaching a student to read Braille, um, I, there was one day where I asked this colleague to come in, do a lesson with me, and, um, and also could we have a conversation with the student's family as well. And I have to tell you, that student's family getting to talk to someone who has a job, who is a successful Braille reader, um, someone who identifies as, uh, you know, um, so, someone who enjoys reading, um, who, you know, is a voracious consumer of, of literacy materials. Um, getting in that, that family talking to that, to that, to my colleague was so much more powerful than me, a typically sighted educator saying, you know, this is what I think we should do. Um, so I think, I think we should all find ways to meaningfully center the perspectives of, of users um, because it's just so much more powerful um, than the alternative. Well, I would, I would call this another successful appearance by Mr. <laughs> Adam <you>. Welton. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's just too bad that uh, we couldn't have you in person around a table like last time. Uh, we'll get back there. We, we will. We will. Once we're back in the guitar dungeon, we'll have you over. Well, why don't we have you on again when you're about to do the Braille Challenge? Oh, I mean, I'd love to come back and talk about the Braille Challenge. It, now, that's coming up in February. So that oh, is it that little, quick? Yeah, okay. that may be a little quick. But maybe, maybe uh, who knows where we'll be next year in terms of whether we'll be in-person, hybrid, or online. So, you know, maybe I'll have, uh, you know, more to, to talk about at that point. I was going to say, though, that um, I'm... This is how I'm going to parcel out the timeline of my life now. AT banter <laughs> podcast appearances. <laughs> I was just going to say we're not going to wait another five years to get. This is you how back. I'm marking. The, this is how I'm marking the passages of time now. Everyone. <laughs> it's between appearances on this fabulous podcast. Wow, you really need a dog. <laughs> we'll get him a robot dog. And there you go. There, there's a use for the robot dog. Perhaps yes, yes. Well, listen, my 2021 resolution was to learn Braille and I got to H. So uh, 2022, Z, I'm coming for you. It is one of those things, though, that if you if you don't use it, you lose it. Well, not necessarily. To a certain extent, yes. You I know, like, because I, 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 I can still do, yeah, I can still do the alphabet and the numbers, but I've lost my grade two, right? And then, of course, numbers. along came UEB grade one, one and a half, two, and you know, they go and change the whole, co whole code on me. But, you know, I was just saying to Rob the other day that one of my biggest beefs when we're doing this podcast is if we do get email or there's a news article I want to read, it is a pain and it's impossible to have my speech read it to me and then me try to relay that back during a recording of a podcast. Right. If I can reinforce my Braille skills or get back to where I was, then I could actually have that in front of me on a braille display and actually read that. Right. Right. I love that your ambitions are so much higher than mine. I just want to be able to go back to pressing the right button. 
button on an elevator. <laughs> even if it's just grade one braille, I'm fine with that. Or even just the basic UEB grade two. I don't care about contractions and all and punctuation and stuff. I just want to be able to read the text of an email or something similar, right? I'm not going to be fluent enough to read a book. That's just yeah, Adam, I have a suggestion for a course. It should be Elevator 101. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing. It's an issue. It's the struggle is real. That, I mean, that, you know, Liz, that's a, that's a, that's a really, it's a, it's a great idea. And, and, you know, all joking aside, because, you know, I think I mentioned before, one of the things that, you know, we, we kind of as a field in K-12 have gotten away from calling it like what we used to call functional Braille, but right. there's still a place for it. Mm -hmm. It's just, we're we've gotten away from it being this binary right mm -hmm. is that you're either you're either doing the elevators and the shopping lists or you're doing war and peace <laughs> but there's nowhere in but i'm serious though that that was a major yeah. that was a that was a, a, a dichotomy that was causing a lot of students to fall off of the the fall out of braille or never even making it to braille in the first place so I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really important. And, you know, Ryan, there's a, there's a, a, a there's a, a, a blind English professor in the U.S. Um, her name is M. Leona Godin, G-O-D-I-N. And she wrote this gorgeous book around about um, um, her, it was, it was part autobiographical, but it was also part kind of looking at how blindness and braille are, are reflected in literature and, and culture right and she 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 gives this example from her own experience that like still brings me to tears whenever i think of it just in in, in, in its beauty and in its point in how poignant it is but you know she was reading some a book that was really emotionally salient to her and she remembers because she's someone who had lost her vision as a a, a young adult mm -hmm. And she talks about how, you know, she used to, when she would read something really poignant, bring her eyes off the page and look off into space and contemplate. Right. And you can't do that with audio. No. You got to fumble and find the pause button and click it off. But with Braille, she could just let her fingers linger, right? right as she had that moment. And, you know, it's just, it's, and, and, and it's like things like that, or, or hearing your, your, you know, your example of, of being able to, to, to read while in podcast mode. Um, just, you know, it, it, it really drives home for me the fact that, you know, we need to have responsive, we need to work with our students on having like responsive toolkits that are not exclusionary to the point where, you know, they've got one or two tools as opposed to a range of them. Well, I think if a student wants to become an English major, you know, or a historian or something, you know, they're going to do the whole war and peace route, right? right. But, you know, there is a place for somebody who just wants to be able to braille up their recipes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So, absolutely. But yeah. it's, yeah, I think, absolutely. And I think, you know, the broader, the broader movement right now is to recognize that these things, that, that, that these profiles don't exclude one another. Sure. Yeah. They could, the, the same person, you know, yes. can, can be can be war and piecing it one day and yeah. grocery shopping it the list the other day. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I'm gonna check out Braille Zoomers. Rob, maybe you should join me. Yeah, Braille, Braille Zoomers is great. It's 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 really like it's just it's it's informal, but it's informal in its it's informal in its in its kind of uh, vibe, but mm -hmm. not in its quality. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, yeah and I think we've had Braille Literacy Canada on before, at least oh, once yeah. for sure. So I'm yeah, I'm, I know that, you know, the one of the and I think that's where, you know, you get one thing I love about Braille Literacy Canada is you've got a real cross section of people from across kind of the I would just say the lifespan. Right. In terms of their experience and their connections to Braille and um, okay. and and yeah, so I, I know that, you know, uh, Natalie, our president is uh, a real strong, um, strong advocate. In fact, one thing I'd, I'd, I'd recommend to you all, she just put out a, a Daily Hive article today uh, in honor of World Braille Day titled Six Ways to Become a Supportive Ally to Braille Readers. Oh, yeah, it's a great article uh recommend checking it out uh well, hey well listen hey on that note uh anything else you want to plug what's uh if people are you want to plug the braille challenge uh yeah so i mean the the braille challenge is something that anyone who's listening can just google um it's it's um or, or look up it's uh it's sponsored by the braille institute of america um, and it's, like I said, it's offered over Canada and the U S there might even actually be some sites this, this, this coming season, this, this year, um, from outside of Canada and the U S which is really exciting. Um, like I said, we do our event, uh, we run our event, uh, here in British Columbia. Um, we have for the last 10 years, for the last two years, we've been virtual just with COVID. Um, but usually what we'll do is we'll get students together for a fun day of games and pizza, but also of competition as well. Um, and so they, they, they do things, they get uh, the challenges are uh, reading comprehension, spelling, charts and graphs, um, speed and accuracy, where they have to transcribe Braille based on the audio track they're listening to. Um, and then the top uh, 50 students from across North America, top 10 in each age category, um, get invited to Los Angeles for the finals. And we're, we're really fortunate in British Columbia that we've, our students have been among those to represent Canada virtually, uh, you know, almost every year. Uh, and so, yeah, we've got some, some, some real high flyers in the province, but really the day is, is about, uh, is about fun and community. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just, um, uh, the, if you just, uh, you know, throw Braille challenge into a search engine, you're, you're going to get uh, a lot of really good information there. We want to thank you so much for oh, coming on again. Sure. We will not, we promise we will not wait five years to have you on again. Let's reconvene and talk more Braille awesome. very soon. I would love it. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks all right. for coming. Thanks, Take Adam. Care. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. I'm just still like imagining just Liz wandering around the 13th floor of any given building. <laughs> you know what they don't tell you though is there's no 13th floor. Well, that too. <laughs> so for all for all of you who think you're fine on the 14th floor, I have a little side note for you, a little reality check. That's one. But, <laughs> but for those of us who are not superstitious like myself, the quote unquote, talking elevator phenomenon where people say, oh, you don't need to know Braille because the elevators talk to you now. Like mm -hmm. they tell you like, you know, floor eight, please exit left. Well, the, the thing they don't tell you is that the you don't get on the elevator and it pushes the button for you. You still have to find the button. Yeah. It just tells you. But so I, I, it's one of those other wonderful ideas that they that a sighted person came up with and never really tested out so oh, now we fix this whole problem for blind people and then you get on and I'm like fuck i still can't press the button
Uh, yeah, and I don't know. Like that's a pretty bougie elevator. There's not a lot of elevators that I that I experience on a on a, and any sort of level that talk. Like it's usually stands out when it when they do. It's like, ooh, wow. Well, and then do you really want to be touching those buttons? One of those fancy elevators. That's you know, it's button. it's funny you should bring this up because uh, I just this morning and I can't find it now had a uh, article pop up on LinkedIn about someone who was developing hang on it was somebody in my network uh they were developing uh, an app for right. elevators so really? that yeah so that you don't have to touch the buttons you right. can just call the elevator with your app and you can select your floor with your app but that's really? great that the app will work on the five out of two billion elevators <laughs> well yeah exactly but just just use your sleeve like i do that's yeah, down down the road it might have uh, greater uh, potential but that's interesting huh yeah but then somebody will hack it you'll have some russian that's just messing with you and hits every button you gotta hit every button up to the 42nd floor <laughs> that's probably true well I, i've gone on to elevators and i'm and i'm standing there and i i'm trying to figure out the buttons and you know, the elevator is obviously not moving because I'm not picking a floor. And then all of a sudden it moves and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm just gonna have to wait till someone else gets on. Yeah. Yeah, it's called contactless access. It allows um, hands-free use of traditional elevators and accessible doors controlled from your smartphone, avoiding contract transmission of viruses too. So it's a special elevator for blind people and germaphobes. Well, <laughs> some, some, some sort of module that you plug into the elevator, I guess. So this is why we have 200 and some odd episodes is because we can just, we could talk for like an hour about elevators. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just bring him on. We'll just bring them on the show. They can tell us all about their contactless elevator app. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know. Did, did Who asked for that? And do we need it? That's, I mean, maybe. Well, then you got, you know, five to 10 people on an elevator all pressing buttons on their apps right so like it's just a real, you don't know so where you're gonna you go anyway going to 16 no <laughs> 13 no 12 no 42 no <laughs> failure 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 <laughs> we're detaching the cables and killing you all <laughs> taking over elevator Sorry. rebooting that's right <laughs> Sorry, Dave, we can't go to Fortnite. <laughs> Anyone's looking for Open me? Open the elevator the doors, Hal. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, how do we get to talking about elevators? <laughs> I thought it gave the show a lift. Oh, oh. that one's for all our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my, I'm going to lose it again. <laughs> All right. Anyways, I'm glad I have a mute button. Yeah. Wow. Oof. Okay. You all right? I'm good. Okay. Let's do this outro and get that. All right. Yep. All right. Hey, uh, oh, geez. Now we talked about this. Me. Come on. I know. you. <laughs> uh, hey, Liz. Hey, Rob. Uh, where can people find us? You can find us on the web at atbanter.com. You're supposed to say on the 13th floor. <laughs> <laughs> I will be on the 13th floor alone in the dark. Uh, hmm. All right. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. So, and if people want to email us, they can also email us at uh, cowbell at uh, atbanter.com. 
If you have a comment, suggestion, or topic for the show, you can also call us toll-free at 1-844-996-4282. And even beyond that, you can reach us on those dastardly social media feeds on Twitter and Facebook. Hey, was that a cowbell that I just That heard? was like half a cowbell. I, bon- I bonked it by accident. Yeah, wow. Okay. I was getting prepared. You got to commit. You either got to you either got to bang Sorry, it or I'm a premature banger. I know. Oh. God, I oh. hate that. <laughs> I hate it too. I hate those <laughs> half a bangs. Uh, I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an app for that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's God, called. Uh, it's, it's called. Uh, What's called? Uh, I've lost the name now. Never mind. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Let's get out of here before we do any more damage. Uh, all right. Well, big thanks to, of course, Adam for coming on our little crazy little show uh, once again. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Happy New Year. Happy 2022. And we'll see everybody. There it is again. Premature. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Control yourself, man. I tried. How about baseball? Um, <laughs> And we we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Look at that master of the one take.